Welcome to the Books of Titans podcast, where I seek truth in the world's best books. I'm your host, Eric Rostad, coming to you from the beautiful Books of Titans studio in Franklin, Tennessee. My goal is to read 52 books per year and share what I'm learning. I'll talk a bit about each book, tie ideas together from a variety of genres, and share the one thing I always hope to remember from each book. Today I'm going to cover The Truth and Beauty by Andrew Claven, how the lives and works of England's greatest poets point the way to a deeper understanding of the words of Jesus. This is book 32 of 52 for my 2022 reading list. Well, this book was a late addition to my reading list. I uh, had On Writing by Stephen King, and I really wanted, wanted to read that book, but this one came along. It was suggested by Joel Tomlin at Landmark Booksellers. And he had such high praise for the book that I, I knew I needed to pick it up. And it's also on a topic that is near and dear to my heart and near and dear to this reading project. And as you heard me say at the beginning, I, my goal for this is to seek truth in the world's best books. Now, this this is very similar to what is happening here. Uh, Andrew Clavon is, is seeking truth is specifically through poets and specifically through 19th century English poets. And I uh, do not, I do not understand poetry. I, I'll put it that way. I just have a hard time with it when I read it. I don't know if it, what I think they're saying is what they're saying, or I just miss things t- completely and I get lost. And then I'm thinking about other things and I just have a hard time staying with it. So th- that's something I'd like to change. And so I am interested in just kind of books about poetry as well in, in, in an effort to try to try to get into it more or to understand it better. So to that, to that end, uh, this book was, was good in that sense. And then just the, there's a lot in the introduction as to the purpose of this book. And so I wanted to read a few of those things uh, in hopes that, that you'll also read this book. But, but here's the purpose uh, for the author writing this book. And he, he started this way in the introduction. This is page six. I tried my best to look at Jesus as I would at any man on first meeting him, or as I would a character in a novel or a history first time read. To this end, I forced myself to abandon every pre-existing notion I had of him. I ignored every doctrine of theology, including those of the Apostle Paul. I wanted Jesus direct, unfiltered by tradition. I wanted his words, his ideas, his vision, not what the saints in sermons said he said. End quote. So that that's the start. There, he. I don't know if I would call it a crisis of of faith, but it's uh, it's it's. It's a crisis maybe of understanding and in a desire to, to go deeper. And so next up, he says, he says he starts noticing in some of the Romantic poets uh, something unique. And, and so here's, here's what he, he says about that. So rather than building their new world from scratch, in the words of scholar M. H. Abrams, the Romantics began to rediscover traditional concepts, schemes, and values, which had been based on the relation of the creator to his creature and creation. But to reframe those ideas as part of the human mind or consciousness and its transactions with nature. Abrams called this natural supernaturalism, an attempt to reinvent the miraculous gospels out of the human experience of the natural world. 
He continues on in the next page, the Romantics set aside all religious precepts and traditions in order to see things anew. And in an age that was much like ours, an age of unbelief, these genius poets in works of spectacular depth and beauty, in ways that are were often unintentional, either accidentally or guided by a hand they could not perceive, blazed a literary trail back from the ruins of the old faith, from the smoking shambles left by human superstition, corruption, and violence, toward the original vision that Christ delivered, not only in the Sermon on the Mount, but in all the works and words of that invisible biography that hovers in the creedal silence between his miraculous birth and his suffering death. And this is a long one. I, I want to continue. Just This is really interesting. So mostly without seeking to, mostly without meaning to, these poets rediscovered what is probable in the living of it. That the deepest experience of human existence, the most creative, the most joyful, and surely the most true is the experience taught to us by the incarnate word of God brought, bought for us by his crucifixion and resurrection. And I'll end the quote there. So this... This uh, he's saying these these poets, they lived at a time that was similar to ours. They were grap- grappling with questions similar to to his, the authors, and what he found in them was a way to understand things he was having trouble understanding. And so the poets that he's talking about are are Lord Byron, John Keats, William Wordsworth, John Milton, Blake. Coleridge, Shelley, the list goes on. And so in this book, and that's kind of the middle part of the book, is he's looking at what these poets said. He's also looking at uh, major works of, of, of literature, uh, uh, Hamlet, Frankenstein, Paradise Lost. Uh, and, and, then, and then at the very end of the book, he goes back into the stories in the gospel that he's having trouble understanding, but now he kind of looks at it through this prism of these poets and what he's learned from them. And so it's a really neat setup. It, it's a, it's an interesting book in that sense of just, he, and he shares some of his reasons in the introduction of like, I, I, this may sound simple, or you've heard this story your whole life and, and you don't, you haven't even thought about it deeper because you, it's just so common, but here were the struggles I was having with these stories and then what he learned and then how he was able to look at those stories fresh. Now, for reading stats, this is a 233-page book. It took me about six hours to read, uh, just a, a little bit under that. Uh, I read it over four days, and so that equaled 58 pages per day. I read it between July 23rd and 26th of this year. I'm going to keep this episode short. I'm just going to cover uh, in the next segment a connection to radicalism that uh, that that the author writes about that I connected to another uh, book, actually a couple books that I read earlier this year. And then in segment three, I will cover my one thing, my one key takeaway from the truth and beauty. Well, I read a couple books this year that have, have really stuck with me. And uh, they were books that both called for revolution. And they're, they're books that I don't necessarily want them to stick with me, but they but they have. And one was uh, Richard Engel's book, The Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State. And then the other one was the Unabomber Manifesto. And in both of those books, there there is a description of a problem, uh, in, in a, a problem group, really. And, and then there's this abrupt call for revolution. And the kind of the 
basis for these calls to revolution is that if we can just get rid of these bad elements, we can usher in the good because the bad will be gotten rid of and the good will will somehow move forward. And I, I always think back to um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's book, The Gulag Archipelago, where amidst the suffering of being in a gulag, he makes the statement that actually the line separating good and evil passes through the heart through the heart of every person. And so there's not this this utopia where you can just get rid of the bad people. If you can just separate them, you can't just get separate them and get rid of them and then usher in this this grand uh, new setting. And in this book, The Truth and Beauty, uh, amidst this just beautiful writing about poetry and and things, he has some statements about radicalism that that really helped me think of these these two books in particular that I'd read earlier this year. And I, I just want to share, there are three, uh, three different parts, and I just want to share these because um, I, I, I love that. And, and that's one thing I, I enjoy sharing in these episodes is just how these books connect, but how um, something that maybe troubles you, or, or troubled me at least, in the reading of those other books, how this book kind of helped put that in, in, into a, a, a different context or, or deeper understanding. Um, which just ties in well with the, the the whole purpose of this book. So to, to start before I read these three different sections, uh, I've got to describe what he's talking about. Uh, and he introduces a concept, uh, the paradox of virtue. And, and he says it's this, a society must be virtuous to be free, but it must be free before it can be virtuous because virtue is not virtue unless it is freely chosen. So that is the paradox of virtue. So now we get into the first statement about radicalism. Radicals transgress the paradox of virtue because they claim the knowledge of good and evil for themselves and strip the power to freely choose virtue from others. In this way, they transform their imagined paradise into a living hell. End quote. That's the first one. And then we go on to the next one. We need only rebuild civilization from the ground up and we can write goodness and inequality on our blank slates and therefore thereafter be equal and good. Uh, take myself out of the quote. This is, he's saying this is what, what the radicals say. Uh, so back into the quote, this is the heart of radicalism. These are the ideas that ultimately infected the French Revolution and transformed it into the terror. The revolutionaries began to feel that if only they could remove the oppressive and corrupt laws and rites and rituals of situ- civilization, if only they could erase the sinful past and tear down all the statues of famous sinners, if only they could declare a new year with new names for all all the months and days, and just imagine there's no heaven and no religion too, why then they would release man's oh-so-wonderful original self into a utopian tomorrow and the world would live as one. End quote. That uh, reminds me of Chesterton's Fence. And this part also reminds reminds me of that. If, if you're unfamiliar with Chesterton's Fence, it's the if you come across a fence, you, your inclination should not be to tear that fence down. It should be ask. It should be to ask why it was there in the first place. Um, and, and as I shared on Instagram this past week, I was listening to a podcast episode where they they talked about Chesterton fence Chesterton's fence being inside of us as well. So I, I always think of Chesterton's fence as being something that um, that is 
ex- exterior. So like you don't transgress these laws or you don't bypass this fence or, or tear down these these things that are outward. But but hearing it in those terms of it being an inward thing uh, inside, that, that was really interesting too. They, in the episode, they were talking about it being in the sense of emotions. Like if you have a certain emotion, uh, don't just disregard the emotion. It, it was there for a reason. Uh, it made me think of conscience too. Um, if, if something is, is inside is saying, don't do that, um, probably better to, to, to listen to that and then to just tear it down and, and, and proceed forward. So it kind of off topic here, but uh, something I've been thinking about a lot. So I'll read this third section here about radicalism. Honor your father and your mother. Acknowledge this simple fact. There is no new wisdom. You are not going to reinvent the moral order. If you think you have, think again. You are not going to change human nature. If you think you will, stop whatever you're doing before someone gets hurt. Your traditions are the road that brought you to the present, your present understanding. If you find the truth and beauty those traditions express, you can take that road into a better future. Destroy the road, and there's only a wilderness of blood in every direction, end quote. Again, just uh, helped help me kind of think of these of these books about radicalism in, the, in these calls for revolution and in, in these ideas of of you know if we just get rid of the bad people um the good will ensue and i th- i i think the reason i'm i'm drawn to these arguments against that is that there's just so much of that right now like uh w- when when groups divide into camps and and everything is about the group over there on how bad they are uh, you start, you're, you're going down that road of, you know, if, if we could just kind of group all those people together and, and get rid of them or shout them down or, or not, not, not allow them to speak, then, then we're on, we're on the right path. And that's, it's not the right path. And so, uh, I, I, I like just getting language like that and, and, and having ideas and ways to, to talk about these things. Just wanted to read a couple other quotes from the book that that um, that I really enjoyed, and then I'll move on to segment three. So here's one about the purpose of poetry. He's talking about uh, Owen Barfield in, in something he said, and and Barfield was, was a friend of of C.S. Lewis and, and J.R.R. Tolkien. So he said this: the purpose of poetry is to re- reunite the language of the physical with the language of the spiritual in our minds. And so recreate the original human experience of the physical and the spiritual as one thing. Uh, I want to read that one more time. The purpose of poetry is to reunite the language of the physical with the language of the spiritual in our minds. And to and so recreate the original human experience of the physical and the spiritual as one thing. Last thing I will read here. A work of art speaks a truth we can't speak outright, the truth of the human experience. A work of art speaks a truth we can't speak outright. This, this just really ties in with uh, a lot of why I started this reading project. Uh, I, I stated at the beginning that I'm seeking truth in the world's best books. Uh, I have this notion that if something is true, it should show up in the world's greatest works of art. Uh, you see like common myths in, in a lot of different cultures, a lot of different times, lands, areas, all that. Uh, to me, it, it just begs the question, why, why were there similarities in these cultures that, that perhaps never even 
communicated with each other uh, or were such vastly different times? Like, why are there similarities there? Why do the wor- world's greatest works, why have they touched a chord in so many different people throughout the ages? Those works speak something that's true and something that's true for all people, for all time and all, in all places. And, and for this project, I've sought that in literature, but I've, I've always had trouble with poetry. And so I really appreciate how this book dug in deeper to the poets. And I'm hoping that it's a sort of a stepping stone that I can build upon to gain a greater appreciation of poetry and just kind of get started. I, I loved how uh, the author would would just share little sections of poetry that that some of these these poets had had done. Uh, we're talking, you know, Coleridge and w- Wordsworth and Keats, and just reading these little pieces, but then kind of getting the story behind it too, and then also what they were trying to do. It, it was a neat, neat, neat book in that sense. So next up, the the one thing. I find it so fun to talk to people about books. And what's interesting to me is how we get such vastly different things out of the books. And I've, I've talked to uh, someone who, who read this book, and they were saying, remember that part about such and such? And, and I'm thinking, no, I, I, don't, I don't remember that <laughs> at all. And, uh, and, but it impacted this person so deeply from this book. And I, I think that's the beauty of, of reading and, and books, because we all, we all bring our own life experience. We bring the things that we're thinking about. We're bringing the book we just read. And, and even as the last segment showed, I, I'm bringing two books about uh, revolution in, into my reading of, of this book. And, and so I'm, I'm thinking of those things as, as I read. And so the one thing, my, the, my one key takeaway from this book is, is also interesting to me because it's not a main point. It's kind of a, it, it's a point, but it's in, and it's brought up in three different parts, but it's not, it's not like the general thesis of the book. It's not about the poets. It's not about that part of it, which, which was really interesting and, and very exciting. Uh, but, but something really stuck out in this book and it was the, the talk where, where he talked about silence and how truth is a kind of silence. And so he, the author was talking specifically about the trial of Jesus and Pilate is questioning him and there's, Jesus is, is silent for a lot of the time. He does, he does answer some of the questions and it's not how Pilate thought he would answer. And, and so, uh, Andrew Clavon says, says this, the truth after all is a kind of silence, a silent presence like Jesus at his trial. Then later on, he says this, he would be the silent presence of the truth. The language of our lives can only roughly express and he would be inexpressible except as presence, as story, as a living metaphor for himself. He would be like the experience of bread and wine, indescribable. You have to taste and see that it's good. And then finally, the truth after all is a kind of silence. Things just are. And uh, that those are the three three different sections. And let me just try to explain what why this stuck out to me so much. Uh, I, 
it it's been helpful as I've been reading other books. Even I've only read a few other books since this book, but even going in with that thought into these other books has helped me understand understand them. Uh, truth doesn't necessarily need to be a a megaphone. It it just is, and there might even actually be a silence about it, and that's okay. And it's just it's just a little insight, and it, it and it was kind of spread throughout this book, but it's just made a lot of things click in my mind, and and it's made other reading very helpful. Uh so if you read this book, I'd I'd love to hear from you because I'm I'm sure you will get something completely different out of this book, and that's that's the the beauty of of this book book, the truth and beauty. So to recap, uh, this is this is a book that looks. It starts with a crisis of understanding, a somewhat crisis of faith, trying to understand certain things that are found in what Jesus said. What what did he mean by these things? What 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 does that say to us now? And then he looks at poets who lived during a time very similar to ours, and how they addressed those same questions in their poetry. And then he takes what he learned from that, and then takes a, a fresh look at those stories again at the end, and then shares what he learned. It's it's very interesting. I um, some of the stories he brings up from the Bible at the end. It, it was just a neat way to to look at them. He he brought up things I'd never thought about before, um, parts of the story that, that um, i just kind of blown past anytime I'd heard or, or read the story. And I, I love that. I, I love looking at these stories kind of from different vantage points. If, if you are someone who's interested in the intersection of Christian faith and the arts, this is a, a very good book. If you are someone interested in poetry, I think you'd really enjoy this book. Or if you're someone who, like me, knows very little about poetry, uh, has a hard time understanding it, this is kind of a good stepping stone to 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 learn about some of the poets, to learn how they interacted, um, how they influenced one another, and to read little bits of, of their poetry and, and even get to know some of the stories behind the works of poetry they put out uh, or the or the books that they wrote. Also, if, if you are just interested in looking at well-known works of literature and poetry with fresh eyes, this is, this is a good book. Uh, he covers not only the poets, but he also covers um, Hamlet and Paradise Lost, Frankenstein, and some of, some of the other books. So that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Uh, like I said, I would love to hear from you if you have read this book. I'd love to hear what you got out of it. And... Uh, if, if there's something I missed or something that really stood out to you, you can follow me at Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter. And then if you do want to get in touch, you can you can email me at eric at booksoftitans.com. That's Eric with a K. So E-R-I-K at booksoftitans.com. Check out my website. I spend a lot of time on that and put a lot of um, thought into the reviews and uh also just posts about how to create a reading list, how to read more, how to remember what you read, that kind of thing. I'll be back next week or in a, in a couple weeks, and, and I will cover another book from this year's reading list. Until then, keep reading, keep learning, keep listening. I'm out. <laughs>